once I knew that his name was Eric, somehow the mystery around the phantom <laughs> becomes... <laughs> oh, he's, he's, he's just Eric. He's Eric. <laughs> This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel of Musical Theater. Peter and I are ready to uh, to go, go deep with Phantom of the Opera today. Oh my God! I'm distracted. A chandelier just fell down in the in my in my <laughs> studio great, here. It's just, the great ah. chandelier effect. <laughs> I yeah, boy. I remember. I remember going to see. So I'll, I'll just a very quick, uh, and then over to you, kind of for your for your kind of how you encountered this material. I was obsessed with Phantom of the Opera when I was 13. I saw it in the Majestic Theater when I think I was 13 or 14. It blew me away. It's the first show I'd ever seen on Broadway. I remember just. I mean, everything about it. The, the visual effects, the music, it was just complete immersive theater. I was on a cloud leaving. I, 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 it's like nothing I'd ever seen before. I remember particularly like the fall of the chandelier, like just astounded me. I went back and saw it uh, on Broadway I, maybe 15 years ago. I was, you know, I'd moved to New York. I was in seminary. I was, you know, the show had aged. I had aged. I was jaded. It was jaded. And my memory was by that point, Phantom of the Opera has been playing on Broadway for like 25, 30 years. And the chandelier, like the big moment happens, you know, the music builds. And it was like, like the slow, as we all like kind of like watch this thing lurch its way with no sense of terror. My my sense is, oh, this show has not. It is it is not the magic that I remembered. So I I uh, I long to be reenchanted by Phantom of the Opera. I think there is, and some of that's just the visual effects. The visual effects were groundbreaking in 1986 when it opened on the West End. 1988 when it opened on Broadway. I don't think they're as arresting anymore. That's kind of my sense is that Phantom has kind of become a little bit of a kind of the old, it's like, it's a little bit of it's a small world after all, you know, like the, the, the visual effects that were astounding are no longer very astounding. There's an element of nostalgia maybe, but it's not quite the same spectacle that it was. Although I think, I think it could be like, I would love to see somebody remount Phantom of the Opera, maybe make some different visual choices and kind of recover some of the spectacle quality of it. Because um, I feel like there is, I don't know, I feel like this is a show that could be rediscovered in an interesting way. Yeah, maybe. 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 It's, so when reading about Andrew Lloyd Webber's, uh, in his memoir, actually, even though it is, and yes, it's the the production values, and I think it's what has drawn a lot of people to this show for decades now. And I, as we're recording this, I think it's still playing on Broadway, but about to close. Yes. Uh, we'll close. I think they've extended the run a couple months because when they announced they were closing, everybody tickets, wanted to get went, tickets. Everybody yeah. wanted to go. I think April. It's scheduled to close in April now, and that may get pushed out if they can still sell tickets. Who knows? This thing is basically a money maker at the end of the day. Right. But again, another Cameron Macintosh production for for Andrew Lloyd Webber. Macintosh apparently really wanted Trevor Nunn, who had directed um, Cats, to come back from the Royal Shakespeare Company to to do Phantom. Trevor Nunn was very busy with another project, which was called, it was a musical version of Les Miserables by... Oh, maybe, maybe <laughs> you've heard Hugo. of the Victor Hugo maybe novel. Maybe you've heard of this, called <laughs> Les Mis. Maybe you've heard of it. And they were trans, you know, being translated from French into English, and it's enormously long, and the, the Royal Shakespeare Company was taking it on. And Andrew Lloyd Webber went back to Hal Prince and pitched him the idea. Prince was immediately taken with it, as he was with uh, Avita. And here's my point. Even though it is spectacle, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber writes, it was really done in a, in, in Hal Prince's black box on the, on the stage, much the same way that Evita was done. And a lot of the spectacular, the big things, I mean, of course, the chandelier crashing down, that's huge. But a lot of the rest of it is, uh, quite literally smoke and mirrors, <laughs> quite clever, quite simple. But the effect, I agree with you entirely. I mean, especially when you get down into the Phantom's lair yeah, and he's on the boat. Where the candles come oh up out of the God, water. That yeah. is, That's an amazing piece of, of theatrical magic. It's theatrical yeah. magic. And it happened because the theater they were in had these tracks on it that they could use in London originally. Then, of course, they had to replicate them for Broadway and then in the many, many, many uh, touring productions 
that have happened. But yeah, yeah, the Toronto production, like they basically kind of recreated the Pantages theater, didn't they? Exactly. Basically for Phantom, right? Yeah. Like that must have been a multi-million dollar. It was a huge project. project. Garth Drabinsky, the great yep. producer of Showboat. I think he's out of jail now. There was a number of problems, but <laughs> well, he can, maybe we. I mean, I think when we when we talk about Christine and the Phantom, one of the things I want to flag a couple uh, very recently, Rebecca Kane, who yes. was uh, Christine in that production, has accused both Garth Drabinsky and Colm Wilkinson, who was the Phantom in that production, of I mean, pretty astoundingly awful behavior, uh, and some of that I think is the way in which. Uh, so one of the one of the questions I have about Phantom of the Opera is whose story is this? Is this male creators? create sort of the the misunderstood artist that gives them license to treat women kind of in the way that the phantom treats christine in the show right and where is and where is the voice of christine in the show i think rebecca kane is very effectively saying you know like i was i was completely silenced uh ironically in a role of a woman who is more or less silenced by a by a bunch of men creators um so there's i think there's a there's a second level of the Phantom story that's starting to come up, come come to the fore now. The women who have played this role, who are uh, calling on the carpet some of the assumptions that have operated in the Broadway theater for for centuries. This isn't just this isn't just a phenomenon of the Phantom of the Opera, but this is a show with some interesting meta level stuff, particularly around people like Garth Drabinsky, um, who made particular choices as a producer in terms of how he brought this thing to the stage and and mistreated apparently a lot of people in the process. Yeah, and it's. I mean, Andrew Lloyd Webber, back to the autobiographical stuff, this was uh, really a, 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 a work of love for him, for his new wife. His first wife's name was Sarah. Slash, slash protege. Yeah. I mean, here again, right? Uh, like the, the layers of uh, autobiography and creation are yeah. first, complicated here. First wife's name, Sarah. Second wife's. So in, in his memoirs, he calls her Sarah too all the time. And then, I'm sure she loves that. Yeah, I don't think that goes particularly well. Yeah. But she has this extraordinary range. Um, yeah, Sarah Brightman. And he really wrote for Sarah Brightman uh, for her voice. And it's so it's a hugely challenging role uh, yeah. for a diva. Yeah, vocally demanding. Vocally yeah. very, very demanding and a very specific voice. The other piece, just from his autobiography, and then let's get into it, but Andrew Lloyd Webber was buying old theaters in London. He'd made so much money from Avida and particularly Cats that he just had enormous wealth, uh, had to hive off another company and so forth. And they were buying and restoring theaters. So the whole kind of setup of Phantom, which is in an old theater coming back to life, a theater coming back to life. This has uh, great resonances in Andrew Lloyd Webber's own um, own own autobiography. So that this combination of love of theater um, needing to find material uh, once Tim Rice is out of the way. And even with Tim Rice, I mean, both Joseph and Jesus Christ Superstar, they were working with material, obviously, uh, from Holy Scripture. So then Avida, they created something. Cats, he worked, obviously, with T.S. Eliot. And so this play, which was in a, a fringe show originally, there were some British folks who were wanting to make a jukebox musical of Phantom of the Opera, taking the old movie. The Lon Chaney horror film. Yeah, exactly. And camping it up, kind of think Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) You Uh, don't have to camp it up that much. It's pretty dang campy. And using uh, pop classics to... Oh, interesting. uh, Okay. To make it. And he had another vision, which was a, a fully original score and very 19th century. I mean, yes, very, very Victorian, very, very Victorian, which is the period that he's most interested in the revival of an old theater, the making of a part for his new love. And boom, you've got Phantom of the Opera. Um, How interesting. Yeah. The movie you watched the movie the other night. I've seen it and have remembered it. And I've forgotten it almost immediately. Yeah, the movie. It it is a um it doesn't hold up. I remember watching it when it first came out and thinking, "Oh, this is um uh, this is overly faithful. It's done by it's uh Joel Schumacher is the yeah. director who is of of Batman fame, and it reads visually as a Batman movie, I would say. Um some of the it's it's mostly very I would say almost slavishly faithful to the original material. Makes a couple changes mostly to allow for extended dueling scenes or some version of a superhero movie to happen visually, which is interesting filmmaking. Um, I think Andrew Lloyd Webber quite likes the film. 
it doesn't do anything particularly interesting to the story. It basically kind of replicates the stage play. The cast is mixed, I would say. Uh, Gerard Butler plays the Phantom. He's not a singer, and you can really tell he's not a singer. It's a disappointing vocal performance, although he's quite quite good, I think, in in the role, physically, certainly. Emmy Rossum is, is Christine. Also, I didn't realize this. She's 17 when they filmed it. Ooh. So, yeah, she is. I mean, so at one level, I just want to think of, here again, right? Like, you've got a 17-year-old playing the role of, I think Christine is meant to be about, yeah. you know, I don't think she's 20. She's, she's very young. The Phantom is, I think, the age of Madame Giry. I mean, the, the, the film goes into a little more detail in terms of the backstory there. But he's, you know, he's old. he is literally old enough to be her father. He becomes a weird kind of quasi-father figure. Yeah. Uh, Gerard Butler, I think, was 34. Uh, Patrick Wilson is Raoul. I think he was also 30. So a 30-year-old and a 34-year-old playing romantic scenes with a 17-year-old who is, you know, mostly like she's delivering on the notes. She hits the high E's that she that are required of her. Um, but she's clearly, my sense is like she is very much a 17-year-old in that film. So it's a, it's an, it's very, the best thing about the film is Minnie Driver as the, as the diva. She is eating the scenery out of the role of Carlotta. Uh, she's actually, she's way better than I remembered. She's the only one that doesn't do her, most, mostly she doesn't do her own singing. They, they had her dubbed, but she camps the hell out of that part. And it is, she's, she's great. She is great. It is, it is a great camp performance. And it's, in some ways I think like that film might grow up to become something like a Rocky Horror Picture Show, kind of a camp classic. Um, and that's actually, I mean, one of the things I want to think about with Phantom of the Opera is, I mean, you know, I think Andrew Lloyd Webber is trying to do heartfelt Victorian romance. Yeah. I think he does, he does, he, he, he takes the material very seriously and he wants us to take it seriously. And at one level I think, okay. And at another level I think this is camp, yes. almost definitionally camp. Yes. In the, in, I mean, I want to say in the best possible way, right? I think about, I think it's Susan Sontag's definition of camp, Right. Um, a, almost a sort of uh, overly loving homage to, I mean, it's something that you love deeply, but then can kind of send up out of love. You know, ba- ballet is camp about love. I forget the, I forget the quote. We've used it on, on another episode. Ballet is, you know, uh, fan of the opera is in some ways camp about opera. Yes. You know, it's, 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 it's opera camp. It is, it is a love letter to opera. It's a love letter to everything opera represents, Gothic architecture, Victorian drama, um, it's, it's camp, we might say, about, um, uh, what, Svengali relationships between male creators and their female protégés. That's where it starts to get, I think, a, <laughs> potentially very complicated in terms of some, some of the gender politics, some of the, uh, weird sexual undertones, maybe not even undertones, a very explicit sexuality of this role. Um, there, there, I, there, there are things I think, like, this is... It, it not unlike My Fair Lady, not unlike Carousel, it's presenting a, a version of a male-female love story that I think has not aged well, and that I have a lot of questions about, like who who is being served by this story about an older man and a younger woman, and the the artistic slash romantic relationship that develops between them. I, I, the, one way that we could refound the opera is he is an incredibly abusive boyfriend, psychologically certainly. Um, so there's there's a there's an ick factor and there's a creep factor to that relationship into the material that I want to think about really clear-eyed and it's a spectacle it's a I mean, spectacle it's a it's and and kind of and kind of I don't know like there's a piece of me that uh really loves Phantom of the Opera yeah like it yeah. It, it works theatrically in a really interesting way well and it's worked theatrically for tens of thousands of thousands of people like that you cannot argue with this show's success uh, in terms of the audience coming back um, it's a, you know, it's a dress up evening for the most part. People feel like they're going to the opera, even though it's a rock opera, you know, the genre that Andrew Lloyd Webber kind of pioneered with. Kind with of, yeah, Rice. invented in some ways. Uh, yeah. And the opening, I think the opening of the yeah. show, and I think this is uh, largely due to Hal Prince, is brilliant because you're expecting spectacle and you go in, curtain goes up and it is... You know, they're selling off a theater, right? Yeah, it's almost it's almost a cold open. I mean, there's no. I think it literally. You know, the curtain rises and it's a it's it, you know there's no music, right? Yeah. It's, it's a, the gavel hits lot six, whatever it is. Yeah, you know, it's this auctioning off all of the detritus of the of the Victorian era in the kind of you know it's a, it's a dead theater basically. Lot six 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 then a chandelier in pieces. Some of you may recall the strange affair of the Phantom of the Opera, a mystery never fully explained. We are told, ladies and gentlemen, that this is the very chandelier which figures in the famous disaster. Our workshops have restored it, 
and fitted up parts of it with wiring for the new electric light so that we may get a hint of what it may look like when reassembled. Perhaps we may frighten away the ghost of so many years ago with a little illumination. Well, it's brilliant to start that way because uh, that allows the spectacle to build. If you'd begun with a huge number, uh, you had nowhere to go. But beginning sort of in a very spare way, the black box is kind of just revealed for what it is on the stage. And then, you know, the chandelier comes crashing down. Comes back to, and, well, comes back to and life. Comes back right? to life. Yeah. yeah. Zoom, and, and, goes and, up. and, 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 you know, it takes, I remember, like, it's a, I'm getting a chill coming up my spine as I'm thinking about it, right? Like, it, it comes back together in sort of herky jerky way, but then makes its slow climb up to the top of the, as the theater is kind of transformed around you. I mean, yes. that's my memory of it, right? Yeah. Is that by the end of that, oh, it's the overture, right? Like, where the theater is created, and by the end of it, you are in the world of Victoria. I mean, you're in the Palais, Palais Garnier in, in, in Paris or some version of it, yes. right? This beautiful world, Victorian high drama at its best. And the opera that, you know, it's Hannibal, right? Then the opera begins and you are you are in this kind of, um, yeah, theatrical fantasy. Yeah. It's really, it's really effective theater. And I think it engages people right away. And as you say, brings you into another world, which is what theater and liturgy seeks to do, um, to, 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 to transport you. And then really what unfolds at a very simple level is a love triangle. But it's a weird and troubling... It's a, it's a creepy love triangle. Yeah. yeah, it's a very creepy love triangle. I mean, yeah, so this this young man shows up. You know, he's the new patron of the... He recognizes he and his childhood... You know, so Christine is this, you know, like, I don't... What is she? She's understudy. an orphan. Understudy. Understudy ballet dancer. She's, you know, I think she's 15, 16, 17. Uh, but remembers this guy from her youth. They rekindle a kind of childhood romance. Although even from the outset, right? Like, I mean, he is very wealthy. He's the count with all this money. She's... And you, you see it in the film, right? Like the way that all the ballet dancers are basically being offered to these men as a kind of, you know, as a kind, like, here here these girls are in their skimpy little ballet costumes available for you, gentlemen. Yeah. So, I mean, from the outset, she is kind of offered as a product. To Raoul. To Raoul. Yeah. Yeah. Who's got the money. He's the patriarchy. Yep, he's the patriarchy. He's the patriarchy. He's the path that love stories are supposed to follow. I mean, if you're, if you're Eliza Doolittle or um, if you're Christine and you can fall in love with someone with money and status and wealth, bingo, that's what you yeah. want to do. He's Freddie Hill in some way. He's Freddie and Freddie Hill. Um, and he's, you know, he's also, like, good-looking, kind. I mean, in the movie, he literally rides around on a white horse. I mean, like, he is he is the romantic hero. He's the prince. He's Patrick he's prince Wilson. Coming. He's Pat. Oh, gosh, he's gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, like, he is, he sings beautifully. He gets all I ask of you. you know? I mean, like, you know, he is, he is the romantic. He's also... A little boring, a little dull, a little safe. Right? I mean, the the kind of the the sexual politic in the middle of Phantom of the Opera is, you know, like I think the audience is very much meant to side with the Phantom. We kind of hope that she will, I suppose, choose him. Right? I mean, that's where the that's where the sexuality is. That's where the uh, the complex. I mean, he's the he's the uh, inaccessible, uh, damaged, literally disfigured, uh, you know, genius, but. You know, he treats her horribly. Right. She has this weird... I mean, I guess I guess at the outset, we're meant to understand that he's been somehow teaching her. He's been her voice teacher. It's not clear to me, like, does she literally think it's the ghost of her father? She refers to him as, like, her angel of music. Insolent boy, this flame of passion, basking in your glory. 
girl with some deep issues. And we see that right off the bat. Right? Get like to therapy, Christine. Get to therapy. Get to therapy, for God's sake. Yeah. She's mourning. She's mourning her dad. Yeah. She's, yeah, being taught vocally by this Svengali-like guy who I don't think she ever sees. Um, and one of my questions is, like, how long, you know, like, he got to the, I, as I understand the backstory from the film, like, he's been living in the opera for, like, what, 20 years? I mean, he's got a lair down there. So, conceivably, he started, he starts tutoring Christine when she's, like, I'm guessing, like, 9, 10, 11, 12? Yeah. I mean, this is kind of Gigi a little bit. Yes. Right? Like, it's creepy. I think he, it's very creepy. I think he's been tutoring her. He's been a kind of father figure to her in a ghosty kind of, like, uh, the whole thing is, I mean, Andrew Lee Weber does say in one of the interviews, like, the story does not hold up. Don't try to analyze this thing. Like, just trust that it works theatrically. Because when you start pulling this thing apart, and he's right, right? Like, there's plot holes everywhere in this thing. So maybe this is putting too fine a point on it. Except that I think at the, at the bedrock of the relationship between Christine and the Phantom is this Svengali kind of mentoring relationship slash father relationship that becomes then a romantic relationship. But all, I mean, you know, it's like she, she is literally abducted by him. I mean, we might say at least certainly musically raped by him. I, I mean, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. We should, we should stay with the early material. But when we get to music of the night, like I really want to think about what is that song trying to do? Yeah. And the, and what's the backstory? Who is the Phantom? Like yeah, who in is the, the Phantom? Uh, in, apparently in the original novel and in the plays, his first name is Eric, which um, I don't know about you, but there's something about once the Phantom, once I once I knew that his name was Eric, somehow the mystery around the Phantom <laughs> becomes <laughs> oh he's 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 just Eric he's Eric. <laughs> It's Jim. It's, it's Jim the exactly. Phantom. But, yeah. but also, then just to spell out the backstory, as far as we know it, disfigured in yes. some way. I think from childhood, he, he talks about how his mother made him wear a mask, yeah. almost, I guess as an infant, right? So the, the, the face which, which earned a mother's fear and loathing. His, his trauma story is, I was ugly to my mother. She made me cover this up. I have always been a figure of... Uh, I've always been reviled because of my physical appearance. And I think that begins one sympathy for him. And and then I think we have to begin to move into the whole world of disability, uh, identity, and so forth. The having to cover up a physical uh, a physical feature that others would see ugly. I mean, theologically, I want to go to Jesus touching lepers to heal them. And the isolation that comes from physical disability. So, uh, and and knowing that, and I think the audience kind of knows that because he's got the mask on, and there's something that has that has put him down in a dungeon. He can no longer show his face publicly, and he's brilliant. He's a genius. He's a, yeah, genius. He's a genius. He's a, a musical genius. He knows a lot of stuff. His lair is filled with. Yeah, he's an architectural genius. Yeah. 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 Uh, mechanical genius, I think, yes. right? Like he's, yeah, he's, we're, I think we're meant to, yeah, he's built himself a whole kingdom down there. Um, I, I mean, here again, right? Like, how did he get all those fucking candles down there? I would, <laughs> you know, but the thing does not hold up, right? Like, no. it's not, no. Trust the story. Yes. He's built a subterranean lair. Some of this, apparently, like, there, there were, there still are rumors. There apparently is an underground lake, or at least there's a river, part of the Seine that got kind of routed through. You can, the, the Paris fire department still uses the lair underneath the Paris opera for their diving practice. Like, there actually is, wow. some of this is a little bit based in, based in fact. There's a story about one of the architects of the, of the, of the Palais Garnier who, like, got permission to, like, live in the basement of the building and they never saw him again. And apparently his name was Eric. That's one story that apparently Gaston Leroux knew about when he started creating Phantom of the Opera. So some of it is sort of based in rumor slash, uh, yeah, I mean, and what opera doesn't have a, or what theater building doesn't have a ghost attached to it, right? Like some of this feels to me very much like, yep, this is how the, this is the world of the theater. Every theater's got weird superstitions, weird ghosts, stuff falls from the rafters. We don't really know how it happened. Yes. You know, I think about like, you know, you never say the word Macbeth in a theater, right? right? I mean, like some of this is, there's a lot of superstition in this world and Phantom of the Opera kind of, plays into some of that, right? Yes. Like, this is an enchanted world. Almost the whole thing takes place inside. I mean, this is Pal Prince's black box, right? It almost all takes place inside the theater. Yeah. Uh, there's one scene where she goes to a graveyard, but that's about it. Um, so it is It is a seamless world that is completely the Phantom's world, right? He has total control. It's like his little dollhouse. He can get anywhere he wants to get. 
Um, he can appear to Christine maybe for years as a kind of, you know, mentoring figure. He's basically manipulated this whole world so that she can now kind of have her moment in the, you know, make, he makes the, makes the fall, makes the curtain fall so that Carlotta gets knocked out. Of, I mean, that's, he basically stages her debut, we might say. Um, and then congratulates her at the end, and we realize, oh, that this, this, there's more to this relationship than just he's not just her teacher, and he's not a ghost. He's a man with some deep psychology. So we have a really complex character in Eric and the Phantom yeah. that I think immediately is interesting to the audience. Like, who yeah. is this person? Who is this guy? How is yeah, he doing? What's he, what he's doing? And then I, I think there's something about, and you can tell me if I'm getting too edgy here, the complete creepiness of the sexuality that is also alluring to the audience. Yes. Like yes. you, you, as you said, you know, she should go Christine, Raul, bingo. There it is. That should be. Well, she, what she should, I mean, she and Meg should go off together. Is really what, I mean, this poor woman, I mean, I don't know. I don't, you know, who knows? Yes, she is. She is clearly uh, turned on. Right. And, and at one level, I think she is musically. I mean, so much of the nature of the relationship between Christine and the Phantom is the power of music here. You know, it's like I don't I'm not going to. But like to me, it's hard not to pull that apart from Andrew Lloyd Webber and Sarah Brightman. You exactly. know? I was like, just going to say the same thing. I, I, I think I don't you know, I have no evidence. I'm not you know, I'm not I've never, <laughs> they've never sat down on the therapist's couch, which me. Uh, but my sense is he's kind of an ugly guy who got the beautiful girl because he was a musical genius and wrote incredible music for her to sing. Their, their, their relationship ultimately didn't survive. It's hard for me to imagine that Christine and the Phantoms relationship would have survived. I don't think that Andrew Lloyd Webber was I hope that he was not nearly as abusive with Sarah Brightman in the way that the Phantom is with Christine, basically manipulating all of her psychology we might say in order to get her into bed. I mean, I think that's, you know, he's, when she, when she goes down into his, so, you know, Phantom of the Opera, the big, you know, the big rock number where they're, you know, in the lagoon. I mean, it's an amazing number, you know, and it's where, it's where the first time you hear Christine, she's basically been doing all coloratura up until this point. But in the beginning of that number, she's singing way low in her range. Like she becomes Madonna, basically. In sleep he sang. I mean, she's going really low. In dreams he musicality of the piece shifts in a very interesting way during that number that song is about sex by the end of it right like she's going full on it's, it's her highest notes christine you know like she hits a high e at the end of that thing it's the highest note in the piece that is a that is a stratospheric note for a soprano to hit and it's orgasmic right you know like she's she's going higher and higher and he's you know sing for me sing for me it's a very weird creepy number but i think that is meant to evoke a kind of musical orgasm i think that's what's or certainly she's having an ecstatic moment as a singer let's let's leave it there then he turns around and sings music of the night right which again right begins as this kind of uh seductive lullaby almost but ends it you know like she at the end the the big high point of the number he has his high note he reveals to her this wax doll that he has made up to be it's her he she sees herself as a bride right so it's like what the hell is that like is that hit He's got a wax doll of her in his lair, dressed up as a bride. 
she faints. I mean, all of this is like this is pure gothic. That's sure. I mean, you know, this is this is Bluebeard. This is you know, like <laughs> all of this is just pure gothic. She faints, loses consciousness. Apparently, he does not take advantage of her. Although we, we kind of get a morning after scene, she wakes up and kind of wonders like, "What happened to me?" And you wonder, like, you know, like what happened to her? What did he do to her? I remember there was mist swirling mist upon a vast glassy lake. There were candles all around and on the lake there was a boat. And in the film remember is is a horror film and this is really penny dreadful in so many ways this is victorian schlock it's meant to uh kind of uh great against our sensibilities um make us feel uncomfortable yes all of that and and can i just do a footnote about music of the night which is a great great song but it's a direct lift from lerner and lowe's brigadoon uh, Brigadoon, the great, the, the beautiful song, Come to me, to bend, bend to me, dumb. Night time, <laughs> I mean, those are, it's an interval that everybody uses, but the, the lift for this Oh, but is... I think that's, I think that's deliberate. I think Andrew Lloyd Webber knows exactly what he's doing, right? This is in some, so it's both, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of love of opera in this thing. There is also a deep, I, I mean, what he and Hal Prince, I think, bonded over was their, um, their early experience seeing South Pacific. So some of this is returning to the golden age of Broadway and doing a golden age of Broadway romance like Brigadoon. I think that lift is very deliberate. Nighttime sharpens, heightens each sensation. Darkness stirs and wakes imagination. Silently the senses abandon their defenses. Slowly, gently, night unfurls its splendor. you 
So in the in the first song, the Phantom of the Opera, the the big the riff, the refrain is the Phantom of the Opera is there inside your mind, right? So there's this sense of uh, Eric being a real human being, but also somehow he's got in her brain, right? Yeah, and she's not quite she's not quite sure. Like, am I dreaming? Is this real? Is he? Yeah, is is this the ghost of my father? Is this an angel of music? Is this a projection of my psychology? Or is he just literally a guy who lives underneath the opera and just kidnapped me and is now going to have his way with? I mean, you know, like I think there is for Christine this deep sense of fear, but also we're meant to right, like we're meant to understand she is enticed by him. Yes, uh, completely, well, and that's compelled. what music of the night is about and it's a it's a great seduction song in so many ways uh it it was the in 1988 at the olympics the winter olympics in calgary um it was brian boitano the great u.s skater who did his routine um oh i remember he had had the mask right yeah to music of the night and it was seeing that that song skated was uh (laughs) was beautiful. I mean, it is a, an amazing it's song. It's very lush. It's, yeah. yeah, it goes, I mean, and it, and it is, you know, it's, it's a, we might say almost a hymn to the power of music. I mean, that's what it's about. Well, music and, and, and the night, right? Like, I mean, it, you know, like nighttime sharpens, heightens each sensation. Like things can happen at night. It, the whole set is lit with candles. They're underground. Um, some of this is, I mean, as you say, it's about the power of seduction, but, but the power of music and we might say theater, right? I mean, what, what is that song evoking, but being in an entirely dark space with very focused lighting, being literally sitting in the dark and watching something happen that, I mean, I think so yet the phantom is Eric is seducing Christine. The phantom is seducing the audience. Andrew Lloyd Webber is seducing the audience. Well, and I think the taking the audience to our deep unconscious, right? To the to the darkness within to the layer the yeah. the layer that is within us that is both entranced by by the disfigurement and attracted by it and repelled by it all in the context of music and candlelight like the 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 plot takes the audience to a very deep place within where our even our least beautiful attractions are given some space to breathe. Yeah, and he, yeah, I mean, I and I think what the Phantom is kind of saying to Christine is, let, like, give in to, like, you want this, Yeah. right? This is why this relationship is at once so deeply troubling to me, and also, like, I recognize something really familiar, because he's right, she does. There is something in her that really wants this, and he is manipulating the hell out of a very fragile person, and telling her what she wants, which is him. I don't know. So I, I, I said before we, before we got on, you know, I, I just, um, I, you know, I, I became obsessed with this musical when I was 13 years old. I just, in the last hour, had I got to catch up with a friend of mine who was the, the, the girl who got me into Phantom of the Opera. She and I were both kind of, uh, we were obsessed with it together when we were 13. Uh, we've been friends, we were, we've been friends since we were in fourth grade. We've been friends for a long time. I was in love with her, right? For most of my childhood. I was deeply in love with Anna. Uh, in a you know in the way that a, a gay boy can be in love with his with his best friend um i you know like she she was ever you know she was enticing she was uh it was it wasn't had it wasn't sexual but it wasn't not sexual i mean i i this is this is not the time to go into the deep psychology of why gay men fall <laughs> so i'm just going to bracket all of this and i but i asked anna you know here we are 40 years old right we haven't talked about fan of the opera in years she knew i was doing this podcast like and i said like do you have a sense of what it was about this show that like was so, and she kind of she kind of rolled her eyes like, oh, how deep are we gonna go, Nathan? But 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 you know, it's like because I, I recognize some of this too. She's like, uh, yeah, a lot of my a lot of my issues with men, I can probably trace back to Phantom of the Opera and something. And I was like, yeah, me too, right? Like, I think there is something that as I mean, I'm, I'll just say as women and queer men, I think we recognize something that's happening. The Phantom is a very queer character in a certain kind of way, yeah. right? Hiding behind a mask. There's something about him that the world doesn't understand. So, I mean, one way I suppose we could read the story is like, maybe he doesn't actually want, like he wants something from her. He he wants Christine to love him. I don't know that he's necessarily interested in her sexually. I, I, I don't, you know, like I don't really know. Um, that's not explicit in the material, I would say. What 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 is clearly going on here is he he know he understands himself to be deeply misunderstood. There is a purity that he sees in her that he finds entrancing. I think he wants to be redeemed by her. 
Now, that is both theological and deeply psychologically troubling to her, right? Yeah. Look, looking to another person to be your redemptive story. I think that's, you know, that's completely objectifying this girl. Um, and there is something about what entices Christine in this thing that I do recognize. Um, is he... It also makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah, me too. Is is he the serpent in in Adam and Eve's story? Yeah. No, I, I think he, yes. I think we're playing with all of that. As you say, this is going pretty deep yeah. into the the depths of sexual slash um traumatic psychology and we're dealing with archetypes i think yeah we're dealing with archetypes the 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 young virgin the serpent the prince charming you know we've got we've got this triangle that is swirling around and in her in her eve like innocence the serpent tempts her in this case with music the apple is mm-hmm. is music is music um, yeah yeah and he is he's inviting her into i mean i think we see this play out in christine's character she does basic like give yourself to this thing it will give you wisdom it will you know like she this is a uh an innocence to maturity story i think for christine yeah. right uh music teaches her how to claim agency he gives her her voice i mean very literally he says this i'm giving you my voice uh, your your spirit and my voice in one combined the phantom of the opera is here inside your mind so i mean there is a way in which he's like planting himself in her um and by the end of the thing i think one way that we could read christine is she actually realizes oh no it's actually it's my voice you fucker yeah. right you didn't you know like this belongs to me it is my voice and i am and i might you know i'm, I'm i'll kiss you at the end but like you know i'm i'm leaving you right like this is uh, i am not going to be your redemption story i'm not your i'm not your angel of music you may have been mine so i think christine does uh Learns, but but this, you know there is an Eve aspect of the story, right? She bites the apple. She understands something about herself. She loses innocence, but gains knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Um, so yeah, I think that Eve archetype is is playing out here. And the Phantom sure. is ultimately destroyed. Eric. Yeah. Well, or yeah. Is he? I'm never is sure. He, he disappears. It's very it's left very ambiguous. I think it's left deliberately ambiguous. Obviously, um, I think we're kind of meant to understand. Oh, he's he's always there. I mean, the fan of the opera will always be inside your mind. Right. Maybe he will only be inside your mind, hopefully. But, you know, it's like, so, I mean, yeah, to what degree is this, you know, is he the serpent slash, I mean, almost a satanic yeah. figure, right? Like, I mean, not I'm not going to say evil personified, but a, there's a kind of demonic quality here. He does represent, I think, uh, I mean, the id in a certain kind yeah, of way. I think that's right? it, like, yeah. Yeah, the, the part of each it. one of us that like longs for something that we know is bad for us. Yes. You know, he's Mr. Rochester. He's I mean, there's a lot like this. This is a gothic archetype, right? Like he's the the inaccessible, forbidding uh, man with a past, you know, who's, you know, enticing. But, you know, right, like he's got a bunch of secrets and he's bad. He's bad news. And so what compelling is it? at the same. And compelling. So sexy, so hot, yeah. so dangerous. He's the bad boy. He's a genius. He he sees you as, you know, he sees a, he sees something in you that you're not right like he sees me as like i'm his i'm his savior he he tells me that i can save him i mean he gives me all this power over him but basically is then enlisting me in this deeply dysfunctional psychological script where i end up serving as his as his handmaiden as his you know like as his slave in this certain kind of way i mean this this relationship is deeply psychologically manipulative entirely on eric's terms so Um, do you think it's when christine kisses him that in some ways he loses his power. Yeah, is that? I mean, it's literally an unmasking. She has a couple moments where she yeah. takes power over him. I mean, we're skipping into the second act now, but let's let's go. I mean, past the point of no return, right? Yeah. It's kind of the other hinge point of their relationship. He's written her this opera. It's of course Don Juan. I, oh my god! I'm, let's not even. <laughs> At one level, it's like the opera that he writes for her is is incoherent in every. Like I don't really understand. I guess it's supposed to be a version of Don Giovanni. I think it's meant musically to be Stravinsky. I think he's. I think we're supposed to understand that he's like thirty years ahead of his time, basically doing Stravinsky in like eighteen seventy. So whatever, classical music historians can have their have their way with that. But he writes her this, you know, this role where he seduces her on stage, right? And but at the end of it, I mean, so you know, famously, you know, past the point of no return. At some point, the actress realizes it's not Pianji, the the actor playing the role. It is in fact the Phantom who's singing the role that he's basically written for himself to sing on stage. So at some point she she has to realize oh shit he's here and they've set up this whole tra- this is basically a trap right like they they're the, there are men and who are have their guns trained on him like she knows that it's kind of up to her now to basically spring her own trap right like she's got to figure out a way to keep him in she has to enthrall him 
long enough for him to let his guard down so that basically the police can shoot him, right? Like, that's the, this is her own release. And so at some point in the thing, she, I think the stage direction is she calmly removes the mask, right? Like, he is so in her thrall that she's able to reach over, reveal to the audience, this is not the actor that you thought, right? This is the guy, they all gasp, right? He disappears, that's how the thing starts. But yeah, I think that's her moment of agency, Yes. right? When she, when she takes control of the relationship, she seduces him in the point of no return. Now, I think that that's a complicated seduction, right? Is that she's actually doing the thing that she wants to do, or is she, um, is she lying, right? Has she, she, has she learned her lesson well, uh, lost her innocence, and now she too can use music to seduce. She can use her voice to convince him that she is his, when in fact what she's going to do is turn him over to the police and, and you know, be released from this toxic relationship. She takes the mask off. She, you know, she unmasks him in front of everybody. That's her moment, I think, of, of power, if there is one. So it's kind of the flip side of Beauty and the Beast in some ways. You know, it's a where Beauty and the Beast, she, Belle, falls in love with the Beast, and then he becomes a beautiful person. Kind of in her eyes. In her eyes. In this one, the Beast, and the Phantom is kind of a ugly, beast-like character. She recognizes who he is and what he's doing to her, and there's nothing good is there's nothing good to be revealed about the phantom. Yeah. About she's, I mean, every, every time she's talking about the phantom, mostly Terrell, but like, I mean, every time we see her outside of a scene with him, she is terrified of him, right? Yeah. He terrifies her. So yeah, I mean, yeah, at one level, it's like, this is just a story about an abusive relationship and a woman who finally manages to get free from her captor. Yes. I mean, like that's, I think it's really important to say that. Yes. This is where I, 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 I mean, like, I'm very suspicious of the Phantom of the Opera because I feel like, like My Fair Lady, like Carousel, the creators are trying, are, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber wants us to see the story as a romance in the same way that I think Lerner and Lowe want us to see My Fair Lady as a romance in the same way that I think Rogers and Hammerstein want us to see Carousel as a romance. And I think it's very appropriate for us now to kind of look back and say, yeah, no, yes, that's actually not, that's not a, that's not a helpful story, particularly to tell women. Like, this is not a helpful script to give to women in terms of navigating relationships with men. To understand that somehow Christine's love can redeem the phantom? Bullshit. No. And, theologically, I think both you and I are very compelled by the power of love to redeem someone who is suffering. Yes, so there is a there is a layer of this that is that is theological, right? Uh, Self sacrificing love is what Jesus says. You know, like that is what I think what we're called to as Christians, and the ways in which that story has been manipulated by the patriarchy to keep women in dysfunctional relationships with abusive and toxic men is a sin. I think that's I think that's evil. I agree. I think that's wrong. Well, and I also think it does a disservice to men that yeah. either you have to be Prince Charming, you have to be Raoul who's offering security, or if you're not that, you are a disfigured, lecherous, creepy old 
uh, dude living the almost I'm thinking of Caliban from yeah. from the uh, Tempest yeah, from the Tempest uh, crawling around on his belly, uh, very earthy. And I th- hope that for for men and for women, but for, just speaking for men for for a moment, that there's an integration, right? That that there can be desire and stability all combined in one but this bifurcates the male in some yeah. ways into yes it's either right. it's either raul or it's eric right um, yeah it's it's patriarchy's version of sort of the male version of the virgin or the whore yes you know it's like yes i think that's right i mean like one of the things that you know it's like patriarchy has damaged everybody right like yes. you know yes as men we are the beneficiaries of much of the power imbalance there but patriarchy has fucked us up too exactly like every everybody is suffering under this thing yeah. not not equally right i don't want to compare my suffering as a man to the ways in which my sisters in christ have been the victims i mean Indeed. often literally Indeed. of this thing and um i think it's important for all of us to you know if there's an unmasking here i want to unmask the story itself as right like a piece of this is like yeah and actually masquerade in some way you know it's like we're all wearing we're all uh we're all caught in the mask of this thinking that this this script about how men and women are to inter- to interact with one another is the only way or the inevitable way or you know like the, the the like the only thing we know how to do and it's like no actually we have a lot more op- there's a lot of other options you sometimes you have to get out of the theater you know it's right. like christine uh, like when the opera house burns down i mean this is so gothic right like sometimes like you know manderley has to burn to the ground mr rochester's house has to go up in flames the, pa- the paris opera has to be leveled in order for us to be you know like in the in the wreckage of all of that to be able to say then okay like let's rebuild something different here um we don't have to be caught by these scripts so i think there i think there is an interesting redemption story possibly here Although, you know, and then I think back to that opening image where it's, I mean, like, you know, if there's, if there's resurrection in the fan of the opera, it's at the very beginning of the opera. It's when that, it's when that chandelier rises and the theater is reconstituted and it's both hugely alluring, deeply beautiful, and it's also a kind of a trap. Exactly. Yeah. In a conversation this morning, I was having my conversation partner, a woman was talking about, we were talking about the politics of abortion and so forth. And just realizing, you know, there had been a moment where it was like we were auctioning off patriarchy, that it was over or that it was being dismantled. And then, it, then the chandelier, the rose. chandelier rose and we're back into anything in, in both U.S. and in some ways Canadian politics. We're back into a very patriarchal leadership style. I mean, the 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 last two presidents in the United States are both men in their late 70s, um, <laughs> holding very different views. But the patriarchy... Night, I'm sure. The patriarchy <laughs> raises, the chandelier is up again, and we're yeah. back into this same shit that we've been in with both men and women, and absolutely women who have been physically, emotionally scarred, in many cases uh, killed because of the excesses of patriarchy, and males in another kind of way deeply damaged by by the excesses of it, and and by not allowing and and just back to you know the phantom is queer. A queer sensibility yeah, which is, comes yeah. through, right? Well, he's very, I mean, he, and he's very, very, very much a victim of the patriarchy, right? I mean, I think we see this all, right? He, I, I, I think you're right to uh, to bring up disability here, right? I mean, like, you know, talk about a, talk about a victim of society, we might say, right? Yes. Like, so, yeah, at one level, the show is, I mean, I would say over-invested in helping us find empathy and sympathy for the Phantom. I think at the, at the cost of really looking honestly at the relationship, the manipulative relationship that he has with Christine. But the other piece of it here is, I mean, yeah, this guy is very much a victim of an unjust society that sees him in a particular kind of way. He too is trying to find his voice and his agency. Um, and he's, and the patriarchy doesn't give him a lot of options. I mean, you know, he's, he's doing, I suppose we, uh, <laughs> the best he can with what he's, uh, I, uh, he's yeah, I know. Hidden. Right. Okay. He's, yeah. he's put away, he's put out of sight. Um, yeah. I mean, there, I think, I, I, I think you're right to look at the stories of the healing 
I, I think about the healing of the, of the demoniac in the Gospels, right? When, when, we, when we look at Jesus' healing stories, almost invariably, it's not just the magic-y bits where he takes away the disfigurement or the blindness or whatever it is. Almost always, those are stories about restoring somebody to community, right? That's the healing that Jesus offers to those whom Jesus heals. He restores them to their community. And that's, I mean, that's what Eric, I think, is longing for, right? Like, it's not just the disfigurement. He wants to, he wants to be, he wants to be upstairs dancing with everybody. He wants, he wants to be wants making to be music. Community. And music is, I mean, what is music? Music is, if we're all deeply connected, as I think we are, because we're part of the earth, uh, music is one of the times that human beings actually feel the interconnection, not just yeah. the musician. I mean, if uh, you, you and I are both musicians, we know... We know the free zone that happens when you sing with a choir and you are one or you're in a theater. Instrumentalists know this when they're playing something. Suddenly yeah, the, you feel the vibration. You feel in the your vibration, body. yeah, in your body. And the audience feels it in liturgy in a moment when the organ swells, the descant hangs in, the congregation is singing, the church is alive. You know you're connected with each other deeply and with God. This is the power of music. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that so much of the the really powerful music in Phantom of the Opera is literally organ music. I mean, yeah. what other Broadway musical uses the organ? To, and so how much of that is, I mean, deliberately evoking, the movie actually does this even more than the stage show does it. So many of the scenes are reset from the dressing room to the chapel in the film. Um, it is literally playing with ecclesiastical architecture, I think in a way that is meant to suggest church is basically the same as as the theater in you know it's like if the chandelier is rising and patriarchy is being beautifully reconstructed before our eyes like what institution is more uh, implicated in that than the church with all of our gothic architecture and our beautiful staying to your point the power of music in a space like that and so yeah both the the degree to which that is such a human experience, such a holy experience, and also can be such a damaging experience because you can get a, it's you know you can get away with a lot when people are enraptured by the organ music and the sense that what they're connecting with is I mean you know the Phantom says I'm your angel of music isn't that just another version of saying like I'm I'm Jesus to you I'm God you know like yeah. I am this is this is about men who are using scripts of 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 religion to abuse power well i am and, i am and, god for you and just to be just to give a moment to the phantom having been deprived having been shunned by human community his desire for connection comes out monstrously in his lust for christine his desire mm-hmm. to possess desire christine. christine what he really wants is to be part of the company what he really wants is to be part of the world, to be to feel that interconnection. But because, because of deformity, because of disability, he's been sequestered, and so it comes out monstrously. And yeah, yeah. although she does, I mean, you asked uh, you asked about the kiss moment, yeah. and I think that is right. Like, I think what what she sings there is pitiful creature of darkness. What kind of life have you known? And it's it's actually a prayer. God, give me courage to show you you are not alone. And she kisses him. And I think the way that's usually staged is she, you know, she tenet- she gives him kind of a, an obligatory, like, little busk on the, right? Like, and then it is the kiss of true, I mean, the music is saying anyway there. That's a real kiss between two. And now here again, right? Or is it oh, a Judas God. kiss? <laughs> what kind of a kiss is that? Yeah. yeah. What is she doing there? What does she, th- I think, you know, at one level, what she's offering him is the redemption that he is longing for. I, I think what she's saying is, I love you. Yeah. Right. G- give me courage to show you in like apparently that the, the way that your body needs to experience it. I love you. Maybe not like I am in love with you or I am attracted. You know, it's like we're not going to, you know, I don't I don't know that that's sexual. I don't know that it's not sexual, but it's certainly more than an erotic kiss. Yeah. I think it is. A, it is saying um, you are a person of value. You are a creature of value. You are created in the image of, you know, it's like I, I can get as, I can wax as theological as, as you want me to there. But, you know, something about that is just human connection, yeah. right? Like you're not alone. You're suffering. You shouldn't be, you yeah. know, I, I, I see you. I, I see what's happening. Um, and I and I love you in, because of and in spite of everything that's happening. Now, is that a moment of forgiveness? <laughs> that that it starts to get a little complicated. But, you know, because he's not asking, he's not asking for forgiveness, right? Like he doesn't seem to be aware that he has treated her abominably does it matter i don't know it is it, it is a certain release moment i mean because what he then does is releases her lover right like the two of you need to get out of here he releases them he lets them go he sets them free we might say 
Um, he disappears into his lair, and that's the last image of the thing, is Meg comes down and, you know, picks up the mask, holds it to the light, right? And we're, I guess, meant to... I, th- I think that's kind of a resurrection moment, I right? So. Like, he's he's out there. He's, you know, he's still out there. Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. There inside your mind. I mean, and he, and that's, I mean, that's, that's probably, that's probably where he should stay. There's a, there's a piece of me that thinks, yeah, I think there is a way in which this, this character is embodying something pretty elemental, pretty dark about human psychology. At the same time, and you and I both, you know, we know, like, if we're controlled by our shadow side, we've all got a fan of the opera, right? Like, I mean, I, I think about the work that we do as pastors. Um, When you try to pretend that stuff isn't there, you, you go down a, uh, oh, that's, that's, that's bad. That's that's dangerous. Um, it's dangerous to deny him his power. It's also it's also dangerous to give him too much space and to let his voice dominate too much. It's about this balance between light and darkness, between good and evil, between desire and connection, and and Phantom. I think the the musical, and I think part of the the reason beyond the the spectacle and all that sort of stuff that it appeals to audiences literally around the world, is we move into an archetypal world where morality is kind of confusing. We move, we really move into the night, into the the dream world where it's just weird what's going on and you kind of puzzle to figure it out. But then I think as this conversation's revealed, the more you kind of dig into it, the more we're, uh, and to what extent uh, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber is successful in this, but you're dealing with some really deep, important themes that are often ignored. This isn't just a romance like some musical theater is. This is this is getting down into the depth of stuff. Yeah, there's a reason this show has become such a juggernaut. I mean, there's a reason why. Fo- I mean, people who are not Broadway people, right? Some of that, you know, like it's 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 it hit the rock audience. Um, yeah. But I mean, yeah, like there's a reason this thing. It's a product. I mean, like in some ways, like Phantom replicates very easily around the world. That's how that's how the really useful company treats it. But there, I, I don't know. Like there, there's a there is something. It doesn't surprise me that so many people around the world, in so many different cultures around the world, are find something in this show that they, I mean, I, I think about my own experience as a 13 year old that get kind of obsessed with yeah. um, it. It is, it's tapping into some pretty uh, important stuff to think about yeah. how, how our sexuality is connected to our trauma. Um, the ways in which the, <laughs> the world we live in has really fucked us up and how we, how we, wh- what it means to look for redemption in, in, in relationship with one another, in another human being. I mean, which, uh, who, who among us hasn't fallen in love with somebody who was wrong for us seeking some kind of, you know, repair work to the, de- I mean, this is how I do premarital counseling, right? Like you, you're going to end up partnering yourself with somebody who's both going to trigger everything that you are carrying around from your childhood and will also give you a means of working through some of that. If you can, right? Like if you can, if you can live with one another's baggage, you can probably make this relationship work. I think that that is the healing that's possible in every intimate partnership. Um, It's also, I mean, it's such rife territory for huge kinds of physical, spiritual, psychological damage. You can easily get to the point of no return. Yeah. Well, write to us and let us know what you think about Phantom of the Opera, yeah. for heaven's sakes, gentle listeners. Yeah. It's a fun show. And, I mean, you know, that we haven't really talked about the, the sort of the whole subplot of Carlotta, the diva, uh, which is where, actually, if, if there's this anything... Is, this is um, fun, this part. This is the fun part of it. And actually, you know, is the campiest part of the whole thing. And there is a piece of me that thinks, like, maybe the best way to experience Phantom of the Opera is uh, schlocky camp... You know, taken to the nth degree. I think Angela Weber. There's a certain kind of wisdom in don't analyze, don't overanalyze. This, this is material Penny too Dreadful. Much. This is horror this is movie. Penny Dreadfuls. Like, have a good time. Yeah. You know, go go there. He's playing with some some levers on his organ that are pretty deep, but he's also writing some great opera pastiche. And Carlotta gets some amazing notes, and it's a fun role. There's a lot of just really fun, silly stuff in Van of the Opera. And, and the it's, music it's a, is really compelling, even if some of it's it is, direct lifts yeah. from Learner and Love. Some of it's a direct lifts. Some of it's a little derivatory. I don't know that everybody with a musicology degree necessarily finds it particularly sophisticated, but at the level of, I don't know, pop ballads, it's hard to... It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to beat music of the of night. Is, it's hard to it beat is. all I ask of you. It's hard to beat Masquerade. You know, this is yeah. this is pretty pretty good writing. It's it, they're 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 fun tunes. There there's some bops in this thing. 
All right, until next time. Until next time. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.